Welcome to the Reasoned Hope podcast. In this podcast, we explore the intellectual credibility of the Christian faith. We seek to show how the central hope found in Jesus Christ is not only rational, but that the Christian worldview makes sense of our experience, our deepest longings, and our intuitions about the world. Thanks for listening, and we hope today's episode is both encouraging and challenging to you, whether you are a believer or a skeptic. Welcome to today's episode of the Reason Hope Podcast. Thank you for joining me. Uh, In this podcast, we look at the intellectual credibility of the Christian faith and seek to answer objections to uh, its truthfulness as well as talk about uh, current cultural issues and how those uh, impact our view of the world, how Christians might respond to them. Uh, and other things like that. So if this is a podcast that you've uh, been enjoying, um, we do have a uh, website, reasonhopepodcast.com. It has the episodes on there that you can listen to right from your web browser. And uh, there's also a place to leave uh, comments and reviews. And uh, there's a blog as well and just some other information about kind of why I started this podcast and uh, what I hope that you benefit from, uh, from it as the listener. Um, ReasonHopePodcast at gmail.com is where you can send questions or comments or uh, anything, uh, maybe even suggestions for topics that you would like covered on this podcast. Um, so feel free to send uh, send uh, things to that email as well. And uh, let others know about this podcast if it's something that you enjoy and benefit from. Uh, there might be somebody else in your life who would be interested in the kinds of things we discuss on this show. So uh, you you can find it uh, anywhere that any major platform that podcasts come out on. Leave a five-star review. It's something you enjoy. Now today's episode, uh, we're going to be looking at a, a very broad topic. Uh, there's a lot that can go into this, uh, but it's very significant to understand. And I'm going to be looking at the topic of evidence for the existence of God. This is something that, uh, like I said, is a very large topic, and so we're only going to be, uh, just because of the limits of what can be accomplished in these episodes, um, it, it's it's going to be kind of scratching the surface, but my goal is to try to present uh, a, a kind of case for the existence of God, how to think about what does it even mean to say that there's evidence for the existence of God? And how would we recognize this evidence? And is there good evidence to believe in God's existence? Um, or, uh, as many skeptics would say, are they right to claim that there is no evidence for God's existence? So um, this is what we're going to be probably talking about for the next couple episodes. So to start off, uh, I want to just address the claim uh, that many skeptics will, um, they will say, when talking about this, they will say there is no evidence for God. And I think oftentimes what what we have to distinguish between is you have to make a distinction between uh, evidence and whether or not there is evidence for God's existence. Um, you have to try to get an understanding of what evidence for God's existence would even consist of how you would recognize it, how you would evaluate it. So uh, the nature of what that evidence would be 
is important. Um, so that's kind of the first thing to recognize. There's a distinction between evidence and not being convinced by the evidence. So another way that things could be is that there could be good evidence for God's existence or some kind of evidence for God's existence, but a given person may not be convinced themselves by the evidence that they have been presented with. So I think we always want to start off by asking, what do you mean by evidence? When someone makes the claim, there is no evidence for God, the the next thing that you want to ask is, what do you mean by evidence? Because we need to get clear on what that is. And it may very well be the case that there is a lot of evidence for God's existence, um, but some people aren't convinced by what they've been presented with. So in that situation, it wouldn't be true that there is no evidence for God. Uh, It would just be the case that some people aren't convinced by the evidence they've been presented with. So I think that's a very important way to start off by thinking about this. Um, Now, the other important piece of this is that the, the way that I'm going to be walking through answering this question of whether or not there is evidence for God is um, by using something called a cumulative case argument. Now, if someone is making an argument for something, it is a persuasive enterprise. They are trying to persuade other people that their view is right. Um, So in this case, if someone believes in God and they're presenting an argument for God's existence, it is a way of reasoning and supporting the conclusion that God exists, um, and that can look a number of different ways. A cumulative case argument is when you have many different pieces of uh, argument and evidence that come together and they form a stronger case. So it's like you have a bunch of different pieces of evidence to consider, a bunch of different arguments to consider that contribute to an overall case for a conclusion. The visual aid that some people have used to illustrate the concept of a cumulative case argument is like a a code of chainmail. Chainmail was a type of armor um, that would be used... um, you know, back in the Middle Ages and times like that, where it would be links together of kind of this chain metal, and it would all link together to perform a protective shield against swords and arrows and things like that. So the concept of a cumulative case argument means that when we're thinking about the existence of God, there are many pieces of evidence and arguments to consider related to this question that all strengthen the final conclusion of uh, seeking to demonstrate that God does exist. So hopefully that'll become a little more clear as we as we move through uh, these different pieces of evidence that, that I think are convincing when it comes to God's existence. Now it's important to see that cumulative case arguments are used all the time in courtrooms. Uh, so you have a jury and you have a prosecutor, you have um, a defendant, and the you know the the goal is to try to see the jury is trying to see does the prosecution's case hold up or um, is is the person actually innocent and does their defense hold up and they'll consider many different pieces of evidence and they try to reason to what um, what conclusion is supported by the evidence overall uh, what conclusion is is beyond reasonable doubt you know that's the goal and. Um, what happens in this type of reasoning is that you you infer what the best explanation is for the evidence 
that you have. So you're looking at different options that you have. You know, in this case, it could be you're trying to see, is the claim God exists true or is the claim God does not exist true? And so you have those two claims on the table and you look at the evidence and the arguments that are presented to you and you try to see what conclusion makes the most sense in the light of the evidence. And that's what's called an inference to the best explanation. And I've explained this on some other podcast episodes. Um, So if you've been listening, this might be something that you're already familiar with. But a helpful quote uh, from Stephen Meyer explaining what what does it mean to... uh, have an inference to the best explanation for something. What, what's going on with that? And Stephen Meyer says this, quote, testing hypotheses using the method of inference to the best explanation involves assessing whether a postulated cause has the attributes necessary to explain the effects in question. So I'll read that one more time. Testing hypotheses using the method of inference to the best explanation involves assessing whether a postulated cause has the attributes necessary to explain the effects in question, end quote. So what Meyer is saying there is that you can have different hypotheses on the table. In this case, it would be God exists or God does not exist. And the method of inference to the best explanation means that you're going to be looking at the evidence you have, and you're going to be looking at the nature of that evidence, and you're going to be thinking what kind of explanation best fits uh, what I'm seeing here. Um, And the key with the question of God's existence is when you look at the universe and you look at different features about the universe and us as human beings, you're looking at effects, So you're looking at, um, I mean, a simple thing would be something like why something exists rather than nothing at all, or the way the universe came into existence, or the biological complexity that we see with life. So those are effects, and you want to reason back to the cause that makes the most sense to explain those effects. And that's a principle of reasoning that we use all the time. You're looking at Uh, effects in the world. You're looking at things that require an explanation, and you're thinking about the nature of what needs to be explained, and then you're reasoning back to what would make the most sense to explain that. We do that all the time. So overall, that's what inference to the best explanation is, and those are just some preliminary things that that are important to uh, get clear on before you even start thinking about whether there is evidence for God and what that evidence might be. So today I'm going to be walking through uh, three pieces of uh, evidence for God's existence that I think are persuasive. And in the next couple episodes, we'll, we'll look at some more of these. But today we're just going to look at three. And those three are going to be the uh, origin of the universe, the design of the universe, and the existence and nature of consciousness. So origin of the universe, design of the universe, and then uh, the existence and nature of consciousness. Um, so if, if we start with the origin of the universe, what do we mean by origin of the universe? And this is essentially asking where the universe came from, how it began. And it's summed up in the question, why is there something rather than nothing? And for many people, this is a question that 
they haven't quite considered on this level. Um, most people just kind of live their day-to-day lives and they're involved in their jobs and their families and other things like that. And um, but, but when you stop and ask yourself the question, why is there something rather than nothing, it, it's coming to an understanding that everything that exists doesn't seem like it had to exist. So um, if we even think about ourselves as individual human beings, we could not have existed. It's possible that uh, we could never have existed. And so therefore, um, we don't have to exist. Um, Our parents didn't have to exist. It doesn't seem like the earth had to exist. And you start to realize that pretty much everything in our lives and in this universe is what we would call contingent. And that just means that it did not have to exist, that uh, there's no necessary reason why pretty much everything in the universe had to exist. But it does. And so it leads to the question, why, why is the universe the way it is? Why is there a universe at all? Where did all this come from? And I think that's a good question to ask. And um, further reflection on this reveals that our universe is not infinite, but it's finite. There was a time in the history of cosmology where astronomers um, believed that the universe was infinite, that it had always existed. And upon further investigation, it was shown very clearly that the universe uh, hasn't always been here, that it actually came into existence at a finite time ago in the past. And at this point, when the universe began to exist, um, they started to realize that everything began to exist from a single point a finite time ago. So we're talking about matter, space, time, and energy. Everything that we know of and take for granted uh, came into existence at a finite time ago in the past. And so this raises the question, what caused the universe to come into existence? And why is the universe the way that it is? And so this is when you get into... um, the Big Bang Theory, which is the best established cosmological theory today. It's, it's, it's the theory that uh, is supported by the most evidence, and this, uh, this is pretty much beyond dispute by the vast majority of astronomers. Um, and if you read kind of the history of how this developed, that's very clear. So if the Big Bang Theory is the best established cosmological theory, what does it say? Well, One part of what it says is that our universe is expanding. So, like I said, this means it began from a single point at a finite time ago in the past. And if the universe began in this way, then it does require a cause which can adequately explain this effect. So, it's not like that any old explanation will do. You need an explanation that makes sense of the effect in question that you're observing. So, one one illustration that is used sometimes to explain the the concept of the expansion of the universe and the Big Bang Theory and how the universe began would be if you take a balloon and you take a a Sharpie marker and you draw dots all over it to represent uh, the galaxies and stars and things like that that we see in the universe Um, And then you take that balloon after you've drawn these things on it and you inflate it and you blow it up. And if you do that, 
the individual markings of the marker that you've made on this balloon will start to separate from one another as the balloon expands. So that's a visual image to think about what has happened with the universe. If you re rewind the clock back, the universe comes back in on itself and, it, and you see that it began from a single point. Um, so this would almost be like if that balloon uh, wasn't there and then all of a sudden it started just expanding and it began from a single point. So that's just basically what it means for the universe to be expanding and kind of a little bit of what the Big Bang Theory says. Now, of course, like I said, you have to ask, okay, if the universe is not eternal, if it hasn't always been here, and if the best science we have tells us that the universe began to exist a finite time ago from this single point, it's called a singularity, then you have to ask, what what best explains this? And um, if you read the history of, of this cosmology, you'll, you'll see quickly that many astronomers and physicists did not like the philosophical and theological implications of a cosmic beginning. And there's a book that's called God and the Astronomers, and there was one astronomer named Robert Jastrow, and he, he has this kind of famous quote from this book that um, I'm just going to read here. So he says, quote, The discovery of a definite cosmic beginning is an exceedingly strange development, unexpected by all but the theologians. They have always accepted the word of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The development is unexpected because science has had such extraordinary success in tracing the chain of cause and effect backward in time. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. End quote. Now, Jastrow's point is definitely a bit rhetorical and um, it, it, it captures kind of the unexpected nature and some of the implications of what he saw um, of a beginning to the universe. So what's interesting about this is that the discovery of a cosmic beginning means that whatever caused the universe had to be independent from it. Or, or in other words, you need a transcendent cause to explain how space, time, matter, and energy um, and all that we know could come into existence from a point in the past. But such a cause would have to be outside of space, time, and matter. Um, such a cause would have to provide all the energy to get the universe going and to sustain it. So by reflecting on the nature of what the cause would need to be to explain the origin of the universe, you can start to understand how this would point towards the existence of a being like God. Uh, a being like God who is immaterial, who is personal, and who is supremely powerful makes sense as an explanation for the origin of the universe. Uh, because to, to bring a universe into existence out of nothing that wasn't there before with all the attributes that we see that it has it requires something like uh, the choice of a personal agent. God chose to bring the universe into existence. The universe didn't have to be here. It's not eternal. 
There doesn't seem to be anything necessary about its coming into existence uh, because there was no material way for the universe to come into existence by necessity because there was nothing material before the universe came into existence. So you need a personal agent who can make a choice to initiate a new series of uh, effects. And creating a universe would definitely seem to uh, fit that description. And you need a personal agent. You need someone who is extremely powerful, obviously. You need someone who's extremely intelligent. And you need uh, a being who is not material, because matter did not exist before it was created or before it was brought into being. So many have seen God, uh, a God like the God of the Bible, uh, with, with all his attributes, as a good candidate and as the best explanation for the origin of the universe. Now, of course, skeptics have proposed some alternatives to explain the origin of the universe. And one of these would be uh, to say that the universe is just there, and it doesn't need a cause to explain its existence. So, um, in other words, some see the universe as a brute fact, and a brute fact is just something that exists or something that is the way that it is, and um, there really is no reason why it is that way. It just is, and uh, for some people, they see this as a good enough explanation. Um, they would say, we don't really need any other kind of explanation to make sense of why the universe is here. And they would say, God is really not a good explanation anyways. Um, another alternative that skeptics might propose would be uh, something that they call the primeval atom. Uh, that's A-T-O-M, primeval atom. And the, the concept behind this would be um, the universe existed eternally in an infinitely dense state of compressed energy. So if you just picture that as like this, um, this massive uh, sphere of uh, compressed energy that's, uh, you know, that is eventually going to develop into the universe as we know it. Uh, but for a time, or at least some skeptics will say that it's plausible to think that the universe could have existed in this spherical state of just uh, a bunch of compressed energy, and then at some point it started expanding into our universe. Uh, but that kind of that sphere of compressed energy has kind of always existed, um, and it was only at a certain time that it developed into our universe. So you either say that the universe is just there or doesn't need a cause, or you say it's kind of always existed, but it, it's been in this state of compressed energy. Now, the, these are certain options that people embrace, but I think when you think about them a little more carefully, you can see that they fail for both scientific and philosophical reasons. And I think the first one, to say that the universe is just there and doesn't need a cause, um, that goes against something called the principle of sufficient reason. And the principle of sufficient reason is just the idea that when we look at things and events that happen in the world, when we see effects uh, in the world, we automatically uh, look for a, an explanation of why that event happened. And this really does go back to the method of inference to the best explanation. We don't expect things to just pop into existence or happen for no reason. We're always looking for a sufficient reason to explain why something happened. And this is a basic principle of human uh, thought. Uh, it's a basic principle of logic and 
uh, we use it every single day. And so to make an exception for perhaps the most important questions that we can think about, as in what caused the universe to come into existence, and just to say, oh, well, we don't really need an explanation for that. The universe is just there. Uh, to me, I think that's a cop-out. And I think that is a, in some ways, it comes across as a uh, refusal to follow the evidence where it leads. If the evidence points to a cause for the universe that would seem to be uh, beyond the universe and the actions of a personal agent, and someone just wants to say, we don't really need uh, a sufficient explanation for why the universe is here, to me, I think that's a cop-out. Um, and I think it's, in some ways, it might be special pleading, which is a fallacy where you make an exception um, for a specific case as in the origin of the universe, when you wouldn't in any other case, as in daily life, when we seek sufficient explanations for things. So to say that the universe is just there and doesn't need a cause, I think goes against the principle of sufficient reason. And the, the second thing would be that our best scientific evidence says that the universe began a finite time ago. Um, so I think that points to the need for an explanation. If we're going to be scientific about this, then we want to seek what explanation makes sense of the origin of the universe. And again, just to say that the universe is just there, doesn't need a cause, sounds to me like a cop-out. Now the second idea, which is that the universe existed in this state of compressed energy uh, for eternity until at a certain point it started expanding into what we know now, um, I think you need a reason why the universe did not expand immediately when the necessary and sufficient conditions were present. And so to, to understand that, it's basically just saying, okay, if you're going to propose the idea that the universe existed in kind of this, uh, if, if we're just picturing this, this sphere of compressed energy, it's like all the, all the potentiality for our universe as we know it today existed there. And it wasn't until a certain point when something happened to change, that's when the universe expanded into what we know now. It's very unclear what would cause that change. It seems like if someone uh, is proposing that idea, everything that would be needed for the universe to uh, originate and develop would already be there in this state of compressed energy. Um, you would have to ask, what would prevent the universe from expanding earlier? Why would it exist in that state eternally? And then what would initiate the change? Um, and so I think that's another problem, is that that idea just really doesn't make a whole lot of sense, scientifically or philosophically. So overall, there's a lot more that could be said about the origin of the universe and how that points toward the existence of God, but that's really just a basic overview. It's coming to the understanding um, that the, the best science we have has shown us that the universe is not eternal, that if you trace the history of it back, it, it, it says that the universe began from a single point uh, a finite time ago. It came into existence out of nothing. Everything that we know, space, time, matter, and energy, came into existence out of nothing. And you need to think about what, what would be the best cause to explain that effect. And when we think about the alternatives that skeptics have offered, uh, those seem to be deficient scientifically and philosophically. And then you think about um, how a personal God, like theism, 
or, or Christian theism, like the Bible would propose, seems like God would be a perfect candidate to explain the origin of the universe. And I think that is a compelling reason to, to see God as the best explanation for the origin of the universe. Now, the design of the universe, this is also a very large topic. But uh, if we're going to break it down some, design in the universe refers to the presence of complexity, uh, precision, and information in our universe in many different areas. And it's important to see that these properties are found not only in living systems like animals and humans, but when you look at the very laws and constants of physics, you see the same types of things. And it's important also to see that uh, such design is not adequately explained in an atheistic universe where everything must be explained by undirected uh, materialistic processes. So if we're going to start thinking about design, it's important to see that there's two major categories of design. And one would be design in the universe, and the other would be design in living systems, or this would be biological organisms like humans and animals and things like that. So if we want to start with what is the design in the universe? Well, there's something called the fine-tuning problem. And the fine-tuning problem is the idea that many properties of the universe are set within extremely improbable ranges and that these are necessary for a life-permitting universe. And physicists who've studied this have been puzzled um, by what they've seen because there doesn't seem to be any necessary reason, uh, either physical necessity or logical necessity, why these values must be as they are. And yet we also see that this fine-tuning is necessary for life, that if, if, if uh, these precise uh, elements of the universe were not exactly the way they are, then you couldn't have a life-permitting universe. And we'll get into more of what some of those things are. So the design in the universe is one part of this. The design in living systems uh, would be the second part. Now, probably the best way to understand design in living systems is to um, look at the nature of DNA. So design in living systems is going to be best represented by a sound understanding of of DNA. Um, And that's the basic molecule uh, in our bodies that gives instructions for all kinds of things. It's our genetic code. So uh, Francis Crick was a famous um, scientist who was involved in the discovery of the structure of DNA. Uh, If you've ever seen a picture of DNA, of course, it's got that double helix look to it. Francis Crick uh, was a key figure in discovering the structure of DNA. And he had something called the sequence hypothesis. Um, And this was the idea that the chemical subunits of DNA, so there's these smaller parts to it, um, and if you remember from your high school biology, these would be uh, those those four chemical subunits, adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine. And these chemical subunits of DNA, they function like written text in a software program. And if you know anything about a software program, programmers have to write specific code into software so that a computer can read that code. It's instructions for a computer on what tasks uh, that it needs to perform. 
in order to run a specific program. So if if we're looking at the nature of DNA and it and it seems to function like written text in a software program, that is going to be a really remarkable discovery. And this is what Francis Crick's sequence hypothesis discovered. What he found out is that the precise arrangement of these chemical subunits in DNA does provide instructions, and it provides instructions for building proteins in our bodies, and proteins are the building blocks for life. So DNA and these these smaller subunits of DNA are like uh, a software program, and our, our cells use this, and it provides instructions for our body to manufacture proteins. And if you look inside um, the cell, it really does look like there's micro uh, machinery involved that is extremely complex, and it's really quite amazing. Now, an important part of this is just, um, it's not just that DNA functions like a software program, and and that's as far as this goes. It's that you have information in DNA. And information is something that always comes from a mind. We don't ever attribute information to the product of uh, something mindless or some random process, especially the kind of information that we find in DNA. So that's kind of the second point with this, is that you have Francis Crick and his sequence hypothesis. He basically discovered DNA seems to function like a software program. Uh, The second point is that the information in DNA requires an explanation. Um, DNA contains not just a precise arrangement of these chemical subunits, but it contains information. And a helpful illustration of this would be um, if you think about written text on a piece of paper. So if you open up Microsoft Word and you write an essay for school or something like that, you know, just some some written piece of information uh, that you've come up with or that someone else has. It's easy to see that ink and paper alone do not provide information. So you can have a piece of paper and you can have the ink from the printer. Uh, you know, when you printed out the document, you can understand all the physical properties of that paper and you can understand all the physical properties of the ink. But having that level of understanding on that that physical level of understanding of the paper and the ink, that doesn't tell you the 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 information and the meaning that comes from that paragraph that's on the page. It is the meaning that we're able to recognize within the precise arrangement of written characters on the page. And so when you type up that paragraph or essay and you hand it to someone else, they are reading that paragraph and they are identifying the meaning that is found within that specific arrangement of sentences and letters and punctuation marks. They're they're interpreting it. And so that's where the information part of this comes in. It's not just the paper that the paragraph is written on. It's not just the ink. It's the meaning uh, that is communicated by the way that those letters and sentences come together. And that's something that comes from a mind. It came from you, the author of that paragraph. And when we see this kind of information in our uniform and repeated experience, it always comes from a source of intelligence, like from a mind. 
you would never think that a, a paragraph that was well-written, uh, that had punctuation marks, and that communicated a message coherently uh, just was the result of a purely physical process. You would understand and automatically infer that that paragraph was written by a person, written by an intelligence. And so this is a similar thing that we run into when we're looking at the nature of DNA and the information that it contains. It has precise instructions in it, in itself, that these chemical subunits in DNA are arranged in a precise way to provide a specific set of instructions for building proteins that are necessary for life. So this brings us to a next uh, significant point, which is something called the DNA enigma. Now, the DNA enigma uh, refers to the difficulty that scientists have of trying to explain the origin of the biological information that's found in DNA, which is necessary for the beginning and the development of living systems. So again, the key problem here is the information that we find in DNA and what best explains that. The same principles of um, evaluation and recognition that we have in our everyday lives when it comes to things like somebody writes uh, an article or a paragraph, um, you can recognize that it's that it's that specific arrangement of letters and sentences and punctuation marks that communicates a message. Um, it's the meaning and the information found in that. It's not just the material uh, of the ink and the paper. In the same way, DNA, it's a molecule. It is written like a software program. It contains information and instructions in it, and that requires an explanation adequate to explain that effect. So that's really just a quick overview of design and living systems. Um, now, if we get more specific about some design in the universe, this would be design in the laws and constants of physics. Now, the laws and constants of physics, if you're not a physics person, which I'm, I'm really not, um, this can seem a little bit abstract, but I think this will be clear enough that you'll be able to get the basic point that I'm making. So, um, the laws and constants of physics just describe sort of the way the universe normally operates and um, key, key aspects of how it functions. So some of these laws and constants of physics that have to be precisely the way they are, otherwise that life wouldn't be possible in the universe, we can look at kind of some of the most fundamental forces of physics, like the strong nuclear force. That's the force that would hold protons and neutrons together. Um, you can look at the precise arrangement of matter and energy at the beginning of the universe. So if you go back to the beginning of the universe, there had to be a specific amount of matter and energy there, and it had to be arranged in a particular way when the universe expanded. Um, you can look at the ability for carbon to form inside of stars. Carbon is uh, essential for life. Human beings are carbon-based. Uh, carbon-based life. So carbon is carbon forms inside stars. And the ability for carbon to form inside stars depends upon precise strengths of the strong nuclear and the electromagnetic forces. You have to have a precise ratio between these forces. You have to have a precise amount of uh, kinetic energy of uh, other elements inside stars like beryllium and helium, which form carbon. 
and you have to have a specific gravitational force inside of the star. So the point with all that is that things have to be very, very, very precise for all kinds of things for there to be life in the universe. And one more thing related to this would be the precise expansion rate of the universe. Scientists have discovered that if the universe expanded quicker or slower than it did, galaxies would not have been able to form or the universe would have collapsed in upon itself. Now, to illustrate this, imagine that you have something like a universe-creating machine. So just picture this massive machine. It's got all these uh, dials and knobs and settings on it. If we're going to compare the way things are with kind of this illustration, all the dials would need to be set within, with extreme precision, and any slight changes would result in a life-prohibiting universe. So imagine that there's one dial that would control how fast or slow the universe expanded after it uh, came into being. Uh, imagine that there's another one that would control uh, the mass of electrons. Uh, imagine that there's another one that would control the ratio of the strong nuclear force to the electromagnetic force. All of these things would have to be set so precise and it's almost as if someone set everything exactly the way that it needed to be so that the universe would develop the way it did and that life would be permissible. Now, another important function of, of you know, when you're considering the design would be design and the initial conditions of the universe. So we've talked about design in living systems when it comes down to the information that we find in DNA. We've talked about design in the laws and constants of physics, but you also need design in the initial conditions of the universe when it first began to expand. And uh, we've already mentioned the how you need the precise amount of matter and energy at the beginning of the universe. And scientists have discovered that if you don't have the right initial configuration of mass and energy, our universe would not allow galaxies, stars, or planets to form. And you need a a precise setting of low entropy at the beginning of the universe. Entropy is just a scientific term that, ref that refers to the amount of disorder uh, in a material system. And so you need a, a low amount of disorder in the universe at the beginning. Now, all of that may seem a little bit abstract to people who, who aren't super scientifically minded. Um, but But the point overall, just to keep in your mind, is that Scientists have discovered all these precise settings that the universe needs to even be life permitting for us to even be here. Someone like Fred Hoyle, who was um, he was a significant figure in the history of astronomy, and um, he was an atheist, but um, his, his atheism was shaken by his discovery of how much design that he saw in the universe, and um, this is what he had to say after coming to realize many of these things that, that I've kind of covered here. He said, quote, A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question, end quote. So someone like Fred Hoyle 
uh, saw all the design in the universe, and to him it pointed uh, clearly towards uh, some mind being responsible for the kind of precision in the design that he saw in the universe. Now, when we're thinking about design, it's important to see that design is expressed in two key features. Um, We're not merely saying that, oh, the universe is complex, therefore this points to God. We're not saying that, oh, we don't know how the universe could have been this way, and so therefore God did it, like a God of the gaps argument. That's not what the design argument is at all. Um, Design is expressed in two key features, and one of those features would be that uh, it's something that's extremely improbable. So in other words, it's something that it's very, very, very unlikely that it would have turned out the way that it has. And you see this in the precise values um, of the laws and constants of physics, the initial conditions of the universe, and the information contained in DNA. It's extremely improbable that these things would have happened by chance or by necessity. Um, Those are the only two alternatives to design. It's either the universe had to be the way that it was um, by necessity, or it is the way that it is just because of chance. And both of those explanations fail to make sense of the kind of improbability that we see in the elements of design that we've been considering. So you need something that's extremely improbable. And second, you need a set of functional requirements. And so this would be the idea that the, the, the specific design that we see results in a specific outcome. It produces a function. And of course, the main function here would be uh, to have a life-permitting universe, that you would end up with a place where there could be all the kinds of life that we see. Um, So the precise settings of the universe are necessary for life. Those settings had to be the way they were, and if they were altered in even the slightest bit, our universe would not be life-permitting. And the fact that it is, and that you find those precise settings, is very significant. Uh, You see the information that's at the core of living systems, it's necessary for their origin, survival, and their reproduction. Um, You have to have uh, something like DNA, and it has to be the way it is, and it's written like a software program that provides instructions for building proteins, and proteins are the building blocks for for life, and you need that. It's functional information. Uh, it's instructions. Instructions result in a certain outcome, and when you think about uh, these two key features of design, the first is extreme improbability, and the second would be a set of functional requirements. Both of these concepts are summed up in the term specified complexity. So it's not that we're looking at mere complexity. It's that we're looking at complexity that is specified. Maybe a helpful way to think about this, uh, a couple illustrations here. One, of course, would be going back to the nature of written text. So if you open up a Word document and you just type a series of um, letters together, and just say you type AA, BB, CC, DD, and you just continue like that for the whole alphabet. Well, is that design? Is it complex? In a certain sense, it, it would be, but it would be, it would be a mere ordered set of letters. 
Um, there's clearly a pattern there. You have two A's, two B's, two C's, and it continues and it stops at Z. So it continues through the whole alphabet. Um, it's, uh, it's a certain arrangement of letters and there's a clear pattern to it. But does that communicate any, uh, any meaning or any information? Is there a message there that you can see? And there's not. I mean, you, you can see that it's uh, a pattern, but it doesn't communicate anything. Now, if you were to do something else and you were just to type a bunch of random letters and numbers together um, on, on that same page, well, you could look at that and say, well, that's complex. There's clearly complexity going on, but it appears to be just a random uh, arrangement of letters and numbers. It doesn't really communicate anything. It's just jumbled. So there's complexity there, but there's really not meaning. There's really not information. And now if you compare that to a third thing, like we said before, if you sit down and you write a couple sentences, you can just say, you know, perhaps the sentence is just talking about the weather or something. Uh, Today has been very sunny outside and tomorrow is supposed to rain. Well, you have a specific arrangement of letters you can see that those letters form words, and you can see that those words are arranged in a specific way to form a sentence. You have punctuation marks, and you recognize that that arrangement communicates a message. It communicates information. And when we see something like that, we we invariably recognize in our uniform and repeated experience that that kind of thing comes from an intelligence. It comes from a mind it doesn't come from a purely natural process. It comes from an intelligence. And that's the kind of thing that we see when we're looking at DNA. It's the kind of thing that we see when we're looking at the precise settings of all these laws and constants of the universe. It's, it has that quality to it. It's specified complexity. It's not just order, and it's not just mere complexity. Those would be um, the first two examples that I mentioned of the just A, A, B, B, C, C, that's mere order, and it's not just mere complexity, as in just the jumbled arrangement of letters and numbers, it's specified complexity. Another illustration of this would be if you compare something like Mount Rainer to Mount Rushmore. Now, most people know what Mount Rushmore looks like. It's got the faces of U.S. presidents carved into it. Um, Mount Rainer is another mountain that does not have the faces of U.S. presidents carved into it. It may have a pile of rocks at the bottom of it. Um, it may have different peaks and things like that. Um, but you can put those two mountains side by side and recognize that there's a big difference between them. Now, the structure of Mount Rushmore is going to be different. Um, the faces of the presidents are an improbable structure. So we look at something like that, and we naturally infer some person is responsible for that kind of structure. We don't say wind and erosion carved the faces of the U.S. presidents into Mount Rushmore. We know a person or a mind did that. Um, so it's an improbable structure in that way, that it requires a mind and that natural processes uh, don't produce things like that. And, and those faces also conform to an independent pattern that we recognize from our experience, and that would be the human face. We recognize when something is a human face uh, and when it's not, and you can clearly see that the intention 
of those carvings in Mount Rushmore are, are, are human faces, and they're specific human faces, faces of human presidents. So um, it's, an, it's an improbable structure, and it conforms to that independent pattern. And those are also very important features of design. So that's a quick overview of the design in the universe. And the point in all this would be that when we see things like this, when we get clear on what design involves, that we're not just talking about mere order in the universe. We're not just talking about mere complexity. We're talking about specified complexity. We're talking about information at the base of life. Um, We're talking about precision in the laws and constants of the universe. All of this points towards um, a mind or an intelligence as its source, and God would seem to be the best explanation for this when you considered that the only two alternatives would be that things had to be this way by necessity or they had to be this way uh, just by some fluke of chance. Those explanations, uh, which we can't really cover all that in this episode, but the explanations of physical necessity, logical necessity, or chance, really, they don't work when we're considering this. So this would be another pointer towards the existence of God. Now, the third um, the third piece of evidence here that we're going to consider in this episode is consciousness. Now, what what is consciousness? Well, J.P. Moreland, uh, he's a philosopher who has studied this a lot, and he gives this definition of consciousness. Uh, quote, he says, Consciousness is what you are aware of when you introspect. When you pay attention to what's going on inside of you, that's consciousness. End quote. Um, another thing he says is, quote, Consciousness consists of sensations, thoughts, emotions, desires, beliefs, and free choices that make us alive and aware. End quote. And he provides a helpful illustration of how to think about this. And so he says, imagine that you uh, went to the hospital for an operation and say it was something on your leg or something like that. And you're put to sleep and they do the operation for a couple hours and they start to take you off the anesthesia. And you, you, you're slowly kind of coming out of it and you start hearing people uh, talking what sounds to be about like you uh, and about uh, parts of the surgery, and they mention that you're waking up, and you start to um, you start to see the the light over ahead of you, and you start to feel some aching in your leg and things like that. This would be you regaining consciousness. You're you're starting to be aware of where you are. You're aware of yourself. You're aware of how you're feeling. You're aware of other people and what they're saying. You're aware of your environment. Um, this all kind of describes our experience of what it means to be conscious. We're, we're aware. Um, we have desires and emotions and beliefs. We make choices, things like that. So that's in general what consciousness is. Um, obviously, when you think about human beings um, and you even think about animals and then you compare that to something like uh, a boulder, you know, we don't think a boulder's conscious, but we recognize animals seem to have a certain level of awareness, uh, and human beings even have uh, more of an awareness. Now, consciousness is uh, it, it's an interesting feature about the universe because it doesn't seem to fit readily into a more atheistic uh, understanding of 
reality. And um, that's essentially because if, if you're an atheist, then you have to um, explain everything in relation to material causes and effects. You, you can't really have anything immaterial in the universe. And so everything kind of has to fit this specific mold. And um, that would be the worldview of naturalism that says that the physical is all that there is. Um, and so if you're going to explain something like consciousness, you have to be able to explain it in physical terms only. Uh, but as we'll get into, there's a lot of ways that consciousness refuses to be explained in that way. Um, and in principle, it can't be explained uh, in that way. So a, um, a good distinction to start off with when you're studying consciousness would be to understand uh, two, two terms. And one is dualism and the other is physicalism. So dualism says that human beings are both physical and immaterial. And so on this view, consciousness is not produced by the brain, but it interacts with the brain. And physicalism says human beings are purely physical. And so this would mean consciousness is a product of the brain. Um, so as you can already see, when you start thinking about consciousness, you're inevitably going to have to start thinking about what is a human being? Is a human being uh, purely physical, or is there more to us uh, than just our, just our bodies? Do we have a soul? Is there anything like that? Dualism would say, yes, there is something immaterial about human beings in addition to their physical bodies. Physicalism says, no, we're, we're physical all the way down. Um, and an illustration to think about this would be uh, the relationship between fire and smoke. So a physicalist perspective is going to say fire produces smoke, and smoke is just a product of fire. Um, smoke doesn't do or cause anything. It's just a product of fire. And so from a physicalist perspective, the brain is like fire, and consciousness is like smoke. It's just a byproduct of the brain. Now, a key point here would be if consciousness is not produced by the brain and something like dualism is true, uh, that there is more to us than just our bodies, then this would show materialism as a worldview is false because materialism says um, materialism, naturalism, physicalism, they all refer to the, the same thing. It would show that this perspective is false because there would be um, an immaterial part of reality that cannot be reducible to a physical explanation. So that's why this issue of consciousness is so interesting, because um, if consciousness cannot be explained as a result of just physical processes in the brain, then it's something independent from the brain, and that would mean that there's something like a human soul um, or spirit, and that would, of course, show that materialism is false. Um, what it also does is that it opens up mind as a legitimate explanatory category in the universe. So that now, when we think about the origin of the universe, when we think about the design in the universe, um, you know, we're saying that these features of the universe point towards an intelligence or a mind or a person that is the source of all this. Consciousness would be another thing another piece of evidence that would come along and say um, human beings have an immaterial mind 
that is not reducible to their physical bodies. And, and so now you have mind as a legitimate uh, part of reality. And that's really significant. And it would point towards God as the originator of mind and our minds. Now, when you consider the alternatives of dualism and physicalism, remember, dualism says human beings are both physical and immaterial. And that would support the idea that we have some kind of soul. Physicalism says human beings are purely physical, and it denies the existence of the soul. So, um, what, what positive evidence is there to think that dualism is true? Well, there's really um, there's three good pieces of evidence, and um, one of them would be mental states and brain states are not the same thing. Mental states and brain states are not the same thing. Now, mental states are just um, are just like thoughts. You know, it's how you're feeling. It's what you're thinking about. Um, brain states would be physical interactions between synapses in your brain. So, brain states are, it's just that's just what whatever the physical processes are inside your brain. Mental states are your thoughts and your feelings and emotions and things like that. Um, now, the key is that we can see that some of our mental states, like our thoughts, have the property of being true or false. So when you think about different thoughts you're having, I mean, a basic one would be if you think um, it's raining outside. Now that thought is either true or false because it either really is raining outside or it's not raining outside. So different thoughts we can recognize they have the property of being true or false. We can reflect on them, and we can consider um, whether or not they're true or false. Now, your brain states are not true or false. Uh, A brain scientist can observe electrical patterns in somebody's brain, but these patterns don't have the property of being true or false. It's just a physical process happening inside your head. Uh, That process is either happening or it's not, but it's not true or false. So another example here, if you're thinking the thought, is there a white car parked in my driveway? And if you were having that thought and a brain scientist was able to open up your head and look at the uh, electrical activity inside your brain while you were having that thought, they won't know what you're thinking about. And they also can't look at that electrical pattern and say, oh, that's a that's true. Or, oh, that's false. You have to actually go out and look and see if there is a white car parked in your driveway to know. Um, But the point there is that the thought is either true or false. The physical activity inside your brain is not. So there's a, a difference between mental states like thoughts and brain states, which are physical events happening inside your your head. Um... Mental states and brain states cannot be the same thing because they don't have the same properties. And so they have to be separate things which interact with one another. And this is a significant point against the idea that our consciousness is is just a product of the brain and is not uh, separate from it. Um, Because if physicalism is true, if our consciousness, uh, our thoughts, and all that is just a product of our brains then mental states and brain states would have to be the same thing. But we can look at them, and we can clearly see that they have different properties, and so they can't be the same thing. So mind 
appears to be a separate thing from the brain. So that, that would be the first positive evidence that dualism is true. Mental states and brain states are not the same thing. Now the second piece of evidence here would be mental states are private and first person, but brain states are not. And I've already alluded to this a little bit, but if you think about it, we have the ability to introspect or to reflect on our own feelings, our awareness, and our desires in any given moment. And when somebody asks you, how are you feeling? What do you do? You introspect. You, you consider how you're feeling. Uh, you have that immediate access to your own consciousness. And then you respond to them. You tell them how you're feeling. And people have to ask you this because they don't have direct access to your mind the way that you do. You have that direct first-person access to your own awareness and mental states, and other people don't. Now, a brain scientist can examine a person's brain. They can see brain activity, and they might know more about the electrical activity inside the brain, but they can never know a person's private conscious experience unless they ask them. And an easy example with this would be that um, brain scientists have done studies on people who are dreaming, and they can tell when a person is dreaming when they see that rapid eye movement uh, type of sleep. But those scientists, they don't have any access to what the patient is dreaming about. They have to wait until the person wakes up and ask them, we noticed that uh, based on your brain activity that you were dreaming. Can you tell us what the dream was about? So they don't have a way of getting at that kind of information unless they ask the person. Um, now, this is more evidence that the mind or consciousness is separate from the brain. We have this direct uh, first-person awareness and access to our own thoughts and um, feelings and mental states, um, and a person can understand everything about your brain states when you're having these kinds of thoughts or, or dreaming, but that doesn't give them any information as to you know, what was going on, what the person was dreaming or anything like that. So that's just more evidence that you can have the brain states, you can have the physical activity going on inside a person's brain, and then you have what's going on in their mind, their mental states, and that these are not the same thing. So uh, consciousness does not appear to be a mere product of the brain. It appears to be separate, even though it's related. Now, the third piece of evidence here would be just as we are not reducible to our physical bodies, um, we're not reducible to our consciousness. And um, this is getting into a little bit further of a distinction here because we have the physical brain and then we have our conscious experience. But to say that human beings are reducible to their brain or they're reducible to their consciousness doesn't quite get at what the evidence points to. The evidence points to something like an immaterial uh, soul, and it's the soul that contains our consciousness. Now, J.P. Moreland gives the example of a girl who lost uh, memories and whose personality changed uh, as a result of an accident that, that she suffered. Another example here would be you can also think of people who are suffering from Alzheimer's or dementia. So if you think of it like this, if, you're, if your grandmother has Alzheimer's, then clearly she will not have the same memories, and certain elements of her personality 
may change. However, you wouldn't identify her as a completely different person. She might be acting differently. She might not recognize you, but she's still your grandmother, even though these aspects of her consciousness have changed. Um, in J.P. Moreland's example of the girl that lost memories and some of her personality as a result of an accident, her family didn't didn't recognize her as a completely different person. They tried to help her regain some of the memories that she had um, and things like that. And so it, it seems that if people are the same person, even if aspects of their consciousness change, like they lose some memories or um, their personality changes a little bit, they're not identical to their consciousness. If, 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 if that's the same person, if someone who has Alzheimer's is the same person that they were before they got that disease, then they cannot be reduced to their consciousness. Um, things about their consciousness changed, but that doesn't mean they're the same, that they're reducible to that. They have a certain continuity of their personhood, and, and that's what is significant here. And in the same way, if a person has brain surgery and a large portion of it is removed, and you can find cases of this on um, surgery that's been done on epileptics, if they have a large portion of their brain removed, you don't say they are 50% of a person because they had half their brain removed. Uh, And this shows that people aren't reducible to their physical bodies. This is not how we um, recognize things and that's not how we treat people, and it's not what happens. Um, so the the upshot of all this would be that the core of a person's identity is found in the immaterial self, and that you know when you refer to yourself in the first person as I, you're referring to that immaterial self, and um, this is our soul, and our soul contains our consciousness, and this is obvious. When you want to get to know somebody, you talk to them. You try to understand who they are. You try to understand what they care about and what drives them each day, uh, what what concerns them, what their experiences have been. Um, you don't study a person's physical body to know who they are. When you really want to get to know somebody, you spend time with them, talking to them, uh, and, and trying to learn about them. So, um, and, and that's getting to know a person, that core of who they are, that's their soul and their soul contains their consciousness. Now, all those considerations point towards dualism being true, that human beings are physical, but we also have an immaterial part of us, uh, our soul and our consciousness, and our consciousness is contained within our soul. And if that's true, then this says something about human beings. It, it says that we have a physical part of us and an immaterial part of us, and these things are related and they interact with one another, but they're both separate parts of who we are that work together. Um, this is why when a person dies and the soul leaves the body, we say the body is, is a corpse. You know, there's no life in it. That's because the person isn't there anymore. The person's soul has left their body. So all these things tell us something about the kind of world we live in. Um, and I think it shows that it's, it's significant evidence against atheism and it's significant evidence for uh, the existence of God. And the key question here is, is um, how do you get consciousness, which is by definition immaterial, from a universe that is nothing but material all the way down? 
And there's an atheist named Colin McGinn who had this to say about it. And he said, quote, How can mere matter originate consciousness? How did evolution convert the water of biological tissue into the wine of consciousness? Consciousness seems like a radical novelty in the universe, not prefigured by the after effects of the Big Bang. So how did it contrive to spring into being from what preceded it? End quote. I think it's an excellent question. How can matter originate consciousness? Now, if atheism is true, then the story of our universe is that it is purely physical and that it came into being through materialistic processes. And so at what point did consciousness emerge and how did this occur? How do you get something from nothing? If consciousness is by nature non-physical, then purely physical processes cannot produce it. And thus, you need an adequate cause to explain the effect. And another problem would be here is that if materialism is true and um, our consciousness is just a byproduct of our brains, then it seems we don't have free will. Because you can only have free will if you are able to deliberate and consider and choose between various courses of action. But if your consciousness is just produced by your brain, then your actions and choices are the result of physical states in your brain and nothing more. But I think intuitively, we recognize that we do have free will, that we do have the ability to make significant uh, decisions and to choose between options. And I think this provides reason to think that atheistic materialism is false. Now, if God, who is an immaterial mind, has created human beings in his image, this provides an explanation for how finite minds could come into existence. And it also makes sense of our ability to possess free will, as God has created us as persons with this capacity. So I think considering the nature of consciousness really points towards God as the best explanation for, um, for consciousness and for this part of reality. And J.P. Moreland has a helpful uh, summary quote from this. He says, quote, The Christian worldview begins with thought and feeling and belief and desire and choice. And that is God is conscious. God has thoughts. He has beliefs. He has desires. He has awareness. He's alive. He acts with purpose. We start there. And because we start with the mind of God, we don't have a problem with explaining the origin of mind. End quote. So those are three uh, pieces of evidence for the existence of God that all in their own way point towards God as the best explanation for um, the features of the universe that they bring out. The origin of the universe, the design of the universe, and the the existence and the nature of consciousness. So I hope this episode was helpful for you, and I hope that it's provided you some good things to think about, and uh, remember that there is reason for hope in Jesus Christ.